Um, it was on my heart to, to talk about the, the, the precious scriptures, the holy word um, that we have been given, that's been passed down to us for generations. And, um, and I just really believe the Lord's highlighting that in the season. And Drew, without knowing it, in a meeting we had the other night, started talking about uh, the beauty of the word and the importance of the word and the centrality of it. So Drew, if you come up here, I, uh, I asked him just that he would share with us uh, from his heart today, kind of what he said, maybe expound on that a little bit, and then we'll see where we go from there. But uh, I just want to have, have Drew share, uh, share what he shared with us uh, the other night. Drew, Drew Parrish, everybody. Drew Parrish. Check. Okay. <clears throat> this thing feels super weird, so I might switch to that one. We'll see. So I told Jonathan this, um, but he likes to play this game with people. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I said something to him, and this is not the first time he's done this, but it made an impact on him, uh, praise the Lord. And then a couple weeks later, he calls me and says, will you say that thing that you said and two weeks ago, and I have no memory of, at all of what I said. But uh, this is a word that, that the Lord has um, really put on my heart uh, in, this, in this time, and I'm excited to share that with you guys. Um, I stayed up really late last night praying and writing a bunch of stuff down, and I went to bed at 1.30. And I laid in bed, and the Lord said, those are your words. Those aren't my words. So I'm tired and unprepared, so let's do this. Uh, um, uh, a few, well, it was, it was probably, I'm going to guess seven or eight years ago. Um, I don't remember the situation, but I think I was, I was talking to a group of people and uh, I had mentioned in this uh, that I had been sick for a couple of weeks, and I was just kind of annoyed and frustrated. And it was like, uh, everything that I ate disagreed with me, and my stomach was hurting all the time. And it got to where I didn't really even have much of an appetite. Like, I, it was just for like a couple weeks straight. And I, I didn't share that, and like, would you guys pray for me or whatever. I was just like, I'm kind of annoyed with this. And I think we were at my house. And I was walking, we have this tiny little bathroom right off of this tiny little hallway, and I was walking out of that bathroom, and uh, Colton, I think Colton, the youngest Ortman, uh, the youngest Ortman boy was standing there waiting for me. Hey, buddy. <laughs> He's probably like 13, maybe 14 at this time. He's a little older now. And he just, with so much authority and clarity, said, the Lord told me that your stomach hurts because you're digesting the wrong food and you're not eating the word of God. And I was like, whoa, okay. And, uh, and he was right. Um, I mean, I have grown up. I am not going to be able to stop touching this, guys. I'm sorry. I, I've grown up in church uh, my whole life. Um, I knew and know all of the Bible verses that we learn when we grow up in church our whole life, but I had not been like digesting the word of God, right? Like I wasn't applying it to my life. I wasn't seeking for the wisdom of the Lord in scripture. It was more of an activity or something that I should do. And if I don't read my Bible, 
then God gets angry with me and I'm not a very good Christian. And so that kind of set me on this journey of uh, really seeking out the Lord in Scripture. It has been one of these things over the last, you know, eight years or, or however long it's been. But, but the Lord is beginning to grow in me a love for his word and to see the value and the importance and the need to be people of the word of God, people who know our Bible, people who read our Bible. And as I'm uh, going on this, this journey of starting to read the scripture for kind of the first time really uh, in my whole life, the Spirit revealed uh, a couple of things, and I'm going to go through these really quickly. This is not the main point I want to make, but I think it is a point worth making. Uh, three lenses, if you will, with which we should be approaching the Word of God. This is not a comprehensive list. This is just some, some things that I want to highlight. Uh, number one, we should be reading the Bible historically, as a, as a work of history. Everything that has ever happened that pertains to our faith is in the Word of God. There's a song by Rich Mullins. If you guys know the great songwriter Rich Mullins, he wrote Awesome God and Step by Step and, and dozens and dozens of others. He has a song and there's a line in it that says, uh, he's talking about, he's singing about Jesus as a child. And he said, did they tell you stories of the saints of old? stories about their faith. They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. I love that line because I think it's, it is so important that we are teaching the scripture to our kids and to our families and to ourselves, not just because it is a history, but because it, it grows our faith. When I read the stories in the Bible about the founders of our faith, or the, the, I should say, the fathers of our faith, stories about Abraham, Abraham Isaac, uh, David, it grows the faith that's inside of me. There's a story in the Old Testament um, of a guy, I think it's Ehud, E-H-U-D, he's in Judges. This is like, well, okay, I, I always say, don't underestimate the Old Testament, like, it can be kind of boring sometimes. I get that, all the chronologies and stuff. But there's amazing things in the Old Testament. This guy, I'm going to say Ehud, uh, he custom-made a sword that was about this long, and he made it so he could hide it strapped to his thigh. And he hid it under his cloak, and he went and paid tribute to the king like he did pretty regularly. And as he's leaving, he turned around and he said, I have a message for the king from God. And so the king's like, okay, this will be pretty good. So he sends everybody out, right? He says, this is a secret message from God. He sends all of his servants out and Ehud pulls that sword out and he assassinates this king. And then he escapes through the roof, kind of like 007 style. And the servants are scared to just go back in because he, he actually locked the doors and then he escaped to the roof. And the king's servants say, well, he must, he must be in the bathroom since the doors are locked. And then so they wait, and it actually says they wait so long until they were embarrassed. So who knows how long that was. And so by the time they unlocked the doors and found him, Ehud was long gone and, and had, had already left. 
I read that and that just like stirs up my faith. Like this isn't boring stuff. This is, this is intense, amazing stuff. So we read the Bible to see the history of it and that history should encourage and build our faith. Number two, we read the Bible prophetically um, as everything that we are looking forward to. Uh, that song, man, Jesus coming back. In, oh man, that's powerful, right? That's out of the Bible. I read uh, Revelation, you know? I see like where, where we're going to, like the end of the age that's coming. It encourages me, Lord, come quickly, right? Or when things are really bad in this life and I feel super downtrodden and I feel lost and confused and I, I don't really know what to do, I can look at the scripture and I see the words of Jesus. You will have trouble in this world, but I have overcome the world. And it encourages my faith. It builds my faith to know God, God, this is temporary. You've already overcome this, right? You already have the victory and my hope is in you. And then the third one is contextually. We read the Bible in context. And this is kind of where I want to spend a little bit of time. Can you guys tell I'm a little nervous? I wasn't until I walked in and saw Sam McVeigh here and thought, oh boy, talk about a cloud of witnesses. Um, my family right now with the boys, we're reading through the book of Job. And if you take the book of Job and you just open it up and you pick out a verse, you might find something that says like, God hates wickedness and the, the righteous always prosper and the unrighteous never succeed. And you think, man, that's, that's good. That's encouraging, right? But then when you zoom out, you see that God himself rebukes the person who says that because he's lying about the character of God. But when we take just a little snippet and try to apply that to our lives, we can be missing the greater context of what God is saying. Don't get me wrong. I open the Bible sometimes and something just jumps out of the page and speaks to me. I'm like, oh man, I needed that. That's water to my soul. But we have to be careful that we're taking the Bible in context with how it was written or who it was written to. And we're looking at the bigger picture and we're not taking a word or a sentence and trying to build a theology or a doctrine around it, right? An example of this is a really popular verse, uh, the wages of sin is death. And that's true. We know that's true. That's not inaccurate. But that verse is often quoted as a sentence with a period at the end, but it isn't. In fact, it goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And it's, it's kind of depressing when you take it on its own, but when we take it in context, we realize that I, I deserve death, but God in his goodness and love offers forgiveness and justification and eternal life. Okay, so I am going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
I'm going to read uh, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, this is another really good example. This is great. These two verses talk about the authority of the Bible, that it has to bring correction and reproof and encouragement and training so that we can be equipped to live a godly life. So what I, somebody told me once, like if you want to read the Bible in context, take the verse that you're reading and read 20 verses before and 20 verses after. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to read that verse again in context. I'm going to read from verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, probably through 4, 8, if you want to follow, so that we can kind of understand what Paul was saying the reason that he said this. But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres, I don't know, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, Yet from them, all the Lord, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. 
Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I'm going to stop there. The rest of that little passage is actually what, yeah. what Eric uh, read, which I love because we, did uh, we didn't talk about that. I think that's great. So what Paul is saying here is that the more and the longer that the human race progresses towards the end of the age, the more evil it will become. And it's really interesting that he says here, uh, having the appearance of godliness, he's talking about people inside and outside of the church. He's not just talking about the world. He's saying inside the church, you will have people who appear, have the appearance of godliness. They have the appearance of righteousness, but they are brutal and proud and arrogant lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. And they don't have the power of God. They, don't, they deny the power of God to remove those things from them so that they can live a godly life. And he's saying that you are going to be turned away if you do not know the truth and hold fast to the truth of the gospel. This is a, this is a scary thing when we think about this. We have the, we, we can walk away from the faith. We can walk away from salvation when we start following myths and teachings that are opposed to the truth of scripture. And the only way that we can stand firm and, and see those myths and those teachings is by knowing what the Bible teaches and by being a student of the word of God, a devourer, if you will, of the word of God. If we, I'm going to, we're going to skip back to 1 Timothy real quick. Uh, I think it's 4. Yeah, verse 4, or chapter 4. He says the same thing, but a little more directly. Verse 1, now the spirit the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Depart from the faith, not, not enter the faith. People who are in the faith will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Last night, I googled, I just did a quick Google search, good sermons. It used to be that you could, Sam was, he was up at the top. He was like, yeah. It used to be, and maybe it's because I was on my phone and not my computer that I'm not great with technology, but you used to be able to see how many search results came up, and I couldn't see that on my phone. But I went for like two minutes scrolling, and it, I wasn't even close. We live in an age where we can have a teaching or a sermon in millions in a matter of seconds. And it's even worse now because over the last two years, people realized, I don't actually have to sit in a pew to hear a sermon. 
I can listen to a podcast, I can watch a live stream. And how do we know that out of these millions of sermons, which is the truth, who is preaching what is true, and who is preaching a doctrine of demons? That's how King James puts it. Mine says teaching of demons, but doctrine of demons. I know my heart. I know my flesh. I think we probably all, to some degree, love to be affirmed and comforted. And we want people to say, you're doing great. You're fine. No problem here. And instead of teaching on the truth and the hard doctrines that we see in Scripture, we find people that appease our itching ears. There is someone in my life who I was very close to who had an amazing salvation experience, went from a life of the worst kinds of things that you can imagine, became a pastor, was bearing fruit, leading people to the Lord, discipling people, raising godly children. And he started listening to a preacher, a pastor, who was challenging him to start asking certain questions about his faith. Questions like, does Mary need to be a virgin in order for Jesus to be God? Or, yes, Jesus is the only way to the Father, and he's the only way to salvation, but does Jesus have to be God in order to be the way to the Father. Or, if two people love each other, who are we to tell them that they can't love each other when God is love? And God created love. And love is a holy thing. And gender shouldn't matter when it comes to love. And this, this person started asking these questions and within a very short time, said, at best, I'm an agnostic, and at worst, I'm an atheist. And he walked away from the faith. I do not believe for a second that he was never saved. He started listening to doctrines of demons that appeased his itching ears, and he walked away from the faith. I think it's really easy to be super critical of... Uh, people who preach the word of God. And we like to throw around the term heresy a lot in the church now. 
uh, without probably really understanding what that means. And when we hear people that we disagree with, we say, that, that's, that's heresy. And, and maybe it is, but that's not your opinion. That's not my opinion that makes someone a heretic. It's the word of God. And we have to know that. We have to know what the Bible teaches. Another thing that I wanted to just say really quick. How long do I have, actually? Okay. Because I have the mic, so. And there's no football on today. <laughs> NASCAR. Easy. Easy. Speaking of heresy. <laughs> Jonathan said it. You only heard me because I had the mic. He started it. Um, I think we're in an age right now in the church where we are distracted uh, from what the gospel is. We've lost sight and lost focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have replaced it with things like healthy living or patriotism or, I mean, name it, right? The enemy doesn't care what it is as long as it's not the gospel. It can, it can be good for you to hear, but as long as it's not the gospel, the enemy's okay with it. And I, I made a list, and then when I, this was one of the things that I really felt like uh, not to go too far into, so I'm not going to get terribly deep here. But there's, uh, there's a couple myths that I want to address um, when it comes to the gospel. We have to be careful what we're telling the lost because it has an impact on how they walk out their Christian life. One of these things that we say, I've said, I'm sure, when we're evangelizing people or when we're just talking about the cross, is that Christ's death saved us from ourselves or from our sinful nature. There is a hint of truth in that, but I want to I read to you what the Bible says about that out of Romans Five. Starting, uh, let's start at six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus did not die to save us from ourselves. He, he died to save us from himself, from his wrath, from the ultimate penalty and wages of sin. Now, is it true that when we have salvation, he deals with our sinful natures? Yes, absolutely. Is part of the gospel that we are bound by sin and he loosens and removes those chains? Yes, absolutely. But his death was about 
the ultimate penalty and the wrath of God. And Jesus taking our place under the wrath of God. This is important. I, and maybe it, doesn't, maybe it doesn't seem like this is something that we really need to, like it's a minor thing. And because it's true, there's a little bit of truth either way. We don't, we don't have to focus on it. But we have to understand the fullness of the gospel to go out and achieve the Great Commission. We have to understand what we're telling people so that they have a full understanding when they want to make a decision to enter into the hope of Jesus. So, what is the gospel? Um, so I'm in sales and one of the things, the exercises that we have to do in sales is we'll have like a new product or something and my manager, you know, will be on Zoom and he'll unmute me or somebody and be like, Drew, 30 seconds, tell me why I need this chiller. Drew, 30 seconds, tell me why I need this contract. I hate it when he does that. But it got me thinking, if somebody turns to me and says, 30 seconds, what's the gospel? That's actually what I said when I was doing this in my head, was something to the effect of being saved from our sinful nature. Like, that was my elevator pitch. That was the one thing that I could come up with if I'm going to share the gospel in 30 seconds. And so, I started at the beginning and went through the end, and I want to just present to you guys quickly what the gospel is. This is not 30 seconds, again, because I have the mic, so I will do, uh, do what I can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the earth, he placed a garden at the foot of the holy mountain where God dwells. And in that garden, he created man and woman. And he created them as his image bearers to rule and reign the earth as an extension of himself and to subdue the earth for the glory of God. Two mandates that God gives Adam and Eve. Multiply and fill the earth, subdue the earth. When later God destroys most of the earth in a flood, what does he tell Noah? Multiply, subdue. When Jesus ascends to heaven, what does he tell his disciples? Go into all the earth, preaching, making disciples of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That sounds a lot like multiply and subdue. So we know the story. Adam and Eve fail rather quickly at being this extension of God on the earth. I'm not claiming that they had divinity, just to be clear. But they ruled as an extension of himself because we are created as image bearers of Christ. And when 
they sinned. Here's the thing. Why did, why did Satan want them to sin? It wasn't because he wanted there to be sin so that he could have his own kingdom. Satan knew, because remember, he was a heavenly being. Satan knew and understood that God is morally perfect. He is completely righteous. And if his image bearers sin, they are not righteous and morally perfect. And that we see through the whole Bible, there is a cost to sin. If God is morally perfect, he cannot let sin go unpunished. And this is one of these, this is one of these doctrines of demons that the church is preaching. That because God is love, he'll let sin go unpunished. Because God is love, in the end, your sins won't matter. That is a doctrine of demon. It's dangerous. Satan knew that if Adam and Eve have sin, they have to die. And then he would have ruined the plan that God set forth to subdue the earth. It's interesting that Satan was on the earth, isn't it? But the Bible doesn't actually say that... I'll be careful how I say that. The Garden of Eden is where God dwelt. But Satan was on the earth at the same time. What were Adam and Eve subduing? They were subduing, they were supposed to subdue the reign of Satan on the earth. And he knew that he could ruin that plan if he got them to sin. And God, being morally perfect, said, you have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. Sin cannot go unpunished. But in his plan for redemption that he unveiled at that moment, he said, yes, you're guilty and you've sinned and deserve death. But because I'm a God of redemption who makes things new and proves even Satan to be an instrument of God's redemptive power, he transferred the sins of Adam and Eve onto an animal, okay? He, this is a literal thing that he does. He, he removed the sins from them and put them on the animal. So now the animal is guilty and Adam and Eve are not. Now there's still consequence for sin, right? Sin is in the world now. But now that the animal's guilty, God kills the animal and he uses the animal to cover their shame and nakedness, which they attempted to do on their own. That's another teaching for another day. And so time goes on, right? And God establishes on the earth the law so that people would know their need for a savior. And we see the same process that we saw in the first part of Genesis. The priests would lay their hand on the animal and that animal would be seen to be guilty in the eyes of God and they would kill that animal 
and therefore the sins of the people were justified because the payment was made. But what happened over hundreds of years is this became nothing more than a religious ritual and it was missing the heart of God. And so the second part of God's plan was to send Jesus as that animal who would take the burden of our sin and our guilt on himself. The wrath of God would be poured on him so that the penalty of sin is paid for. But it's even better because not only did he pay the penalty of sin, he defeated death. Firstborn of the dead, right? Because he died a physical death and now he lives. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be wrapping up. But um, I did not make a note of where I wanted to, <laughs> to read this. That's okay. Let's do Ephesians 2. I'll do you guys one better now and give you a 30-second gospel. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. But God... Lost and dead in sin with no hope. Worthy of the wrath of God. Deserving of the wrath of God. But God made a way for us to come back and sit at his table. Why is this important? You guys know the gospel, right? This isn't, this isn't something new. I'm tired of seeing people 10, 20, 30 years in the faith walk away. And I just hear the Lord saying, like, we need to get back to the gospel. Repent, believe, trust, be baptized, walk by the Spirit. 
and then come sit at the table and eat with the Father. A lot of these people that I know personally or that I hear about that walk away from the faith will say things like, God said he had a plan for my life. And for 30 years, I've been doing the same thing and I'm not seeing any fruit. And therefore, either God's a liar or he's not real. My challenge is when we are preaching the gospel, we are not preaching that God has a plan for you. The gospel is the good work of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And then, then, when we are restored to the Father, we sit at the table and we eat with him. And this is how we do that. We pray and we read the Bible and we eat with the Father. And from that place, from that dinner table, yeah, you're probably going to get assignment, right? That's the place that God begins to say, this is what I have for you in the kingdom, right? This is the place for Jonathan that God says, raise up the church in El Dorado and equip her. Or to Sam, raise up the people to pray. But then when you're on your assignment, come back to the table every day. Because if we're doing assignment and we're not eating at the table with the Father, your assignment becomes another religious ritual and we're no better off than the Israelites who performed sacrifice for hundreds of years and missed the heart of the Father completely. Church, we have to be people who love the Word of God. And it's okay if right now you say, I really don't. It can be a discipline. It is a discipline to read your Bible. Not always, but it is something that we have to work at. I'm telling you, know your Bible and you know the Father. John, I'm going to hand it back to you, I think. Yeah. Lord, we ask to be a people who love your word. I think of the disciples when everyone was offended and you looked at your friends and said, are you going to leave? Me too. And they said, where would we go? Only you have the words of life. Lord, I pray that we would be a church and a body and a people who speak the words of life over each other and over the lost. That we are faithful to the word of God. Lord, I just pray that there is no Uh, that, that there is no condemnation that comes from this word, but encouragement, Lord, to be a people of your word. Create in us a desire, O God, 